Buzz Buzz, we are back with another episode on the fly. Happy Veterans Day. Thank you to all our veterans and active duty service members who continue to serve and keep us safe. This week, we got the amazing opportunity to welcome Emily Horn on the pod. With her amount of experience, we could have an entire series talking with her. As a career civil servant for nearly a decade, from 2009 to 2017, she has had a front row seat to the reshaping of the global order. Additionally, she was the spokesperson for the National Security Council and the first special assistant to the president under President Joe Biden. Arguably, she's seen some of the most prominent realignments in global policy in the 21st century, all while being a new mom. As she has had a front row seat to history, she took many lessons in about leadership and service. Now she leads Allegro, her own public affairs consultant agency. Enough from us. Let's hear what Emily has to say. We're so happy to have yeah. you. Yeah, how's your day been going? How are you enjoying this chilly weather? I mean, look, it's a beautiful fall Wednesday on a college campus in North America. The sun is shining, birds are singing, and there's lots of leftover Halloween candy. Yes. That is right. And we also have another guest in the studio today. <laughs> we do. We have Laika, Emily's dog. Hello, Laika. You can say hello. Laika the Super Mud is here with us. <laughs> we love her. Um, so yeah. All right, let's dive right in. So you began your foray in the political community, actually not too far from Georgetown at GW. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our recent conversation, you were telling us how you were actually involved in theater in college. <laughs> so how did you go from theater to national security and working in the State Department and just communications in general? Oh gosh, I wish I could have done theater in college. I was not good enough for it, but I was a theater kid growing up. You're absolutely right about that. Yes. Um, and I look, I think there's actually a direct line from theater and performing arts generally to communications, um, because I think theater performers, actors, storytellers, artists generally, they understand the power of narrative. They understand the power of a story to grab an audience's attention and galvanize them towards action, and they understand Um, that people like being a part of that collective experience. They like the feeling of sitting in a theater, watching a performance, of being a part of that magic that is being created for a moment is a really powerful experience. Um, You know, the Greeks called it catharsis. You know, there is something that is um, deeply spiritual about that experience. And I think performers have that in their bones uh, in a way that you don't necessarily if you didn't grow up on stage or supporting those on stage. Yeah, that, that's totally great. And I think that's definitely a lesson, a very important lesson that you had to carry with you walking into the Biden administration. I mean, I think you guys entered a world where a lot of our allies were sort of distrusting um, of our will to keep our word. Um, and so you had to play a big role in rebuilding trust with our allies. So so how did you do that? And, and what were some of the difficulties in rebuilding some of those relationships? Sure. So I think it's important to take a step back and remember just what it felt like for all of us in January of 2021. You know, we've been through almost a year of COVID. Um, Vaccines have started to appear, but are certainly not ubiquitous yet. We're coming off of four years of the Trump administration, um, which regardless of what your personal politics were, there's no questioning that under the Trump administration, the United States pulled back dramatically from the world stage. 
both membership and participation in international organizations, but also deliberately choosing to walk away from the power of many of our alliances, both bilaterally and multilaterally. And President Biden has always seen our alliances as one of our great sources of strength as a nation. And so among the many things that we had to tackle very early on in the Biden administration, reprioritizing and rebuilding our international alliances was a huge part of our international affairs uh, mandate. But also it was telling our adversaries exactly who we are and what we were about. And you know, we didn't just talk with friends in those early days and weeks. Yeah. You know, we also made it a point to uh, reach out uh, to responses, uh, to overtures, I should say, from, from Putin, um, mm -hmm. from the Russians, and to talk with Putin directly early on to say, this is what we're going to be about. Um, the president talked with um, Xi Jinping very early on. I think it was in February. Um, uh, so, you know, making very clear uh, that this is what the Biden administration is going to be about. This is where we welcome competition. This is where we think that we um, all need to be following the rules of the road. Yeah. But then importantly to our friends and allies and partners, that the United States is back and yeah. we don't intend to go anywhere. Yeah, and speaking of and speaking of January 2021, mm -hmm. um, arguably you can say you were part of one of the first administrations that did not experience the peaceful transfer of power. Mm -hmm. So what were some of those difficulties um, in that delayed transfer of power, delayed transfer of resources, personnel, knowledge, and, and, uh, and how did that impact your ability to get up and going on the world mm -hmm. stage? So I had done previous presidential transitions when I was a career civil servant with the State Department, and I did actually the Obama to Trump transition from mm -hmm. the Obama White House. And the mandate that President Obama gave us was, I want you to make this the most successful, smoothest transition ever to happen. Yeah. You know, we really went out of our way, I think, to do everything we could as career officials, but also the political appointees under Obama to set up the Trump administration for success because it is in everyone's interest when there is a peaceful transition of power, when the keys uh, are handed over responsibly uh, yeah. to the next driver, because um, it's a scary thing. It's a very heady mm -hmm. thing when you walk into office on inauguration day and you don't even know your computer password and you don't have your outgoing voicemail set up and you uh, have a to-do list that goes up to the ceiling and suddenly you're in charge and there's no one else in another room who is gonna be running the government. It's you and your colleagues. That's a heady responsibility. Yeah. And you wanna do everything that you can, just as a fellow citizen, to prepare the new team for it. Um, I'll be diplomatic and say that the Trump administration did not take that approach when it came to supporting the transition to Biden. Mm -hmm. um, no again, being diplomatic, also we were under a very unique circumstance where we were all doing this remotely. Um, I spent yeah. more hours uh, Zooming in my bedroom <laughs> in, during transition uh, than any uh, human being should. But it's been well documented by many great journalists and authors whose work I won't attempt to parse here um, that the, there were a lot of deliberate roadblocks thrown up to uh, making this a smooth and even peaceful transition. And then, of course, the events of January 6th were, um, I think, really quite devastating, not just for our operations as a transition team, but for what it did to our already frayed national uh, psyche and also to our frankly our standing on the world stage definitely and you mentioned you know entering into 2021 it's a drastically new global world order there's so much inner competition and i'm just curious to hear more about how 
you managed to engage with the world while advancing America's domestic policy interests, while so much was happening within our country's borders with the January 6th insurrection and everything like that. So something that's been really quite remarkable from the last few years that really is a sea change for most of my career in government is the breaking down of silos between domestic policy and foreign policy. Mm-hmm. They really are increasingly one and the same. And that's very different than the system that I came up in as a career official at the State Department, where foreign policy lived on one side and then domestic policy was over in a whole other realm with different people working on it and different stakeholders and you know, never the twain shall meet. And the pandemic, like it did with so many other things, just completely broke down those assumptions. And there's nowhere to hide within a world where suddenly a pandemic that does not respect national borders has completely upended, not just our approach to international relations, but virtually every domestic equity, whether it's the economy, whether it's our education policy or healthcare policy, our industrial policy. I think it really exposed how artificial those silos were and how much work we, who have spent much of our careers in government, had to do to frankly get over ourselves and understand that (laughs) the world experiences these things not through an academic lens where one person, quote unquote, owns something, but they just experience it how they experience it. And supply chains, global health, um, global economy, trade, these are all issues that don't necessarily stop at the water's edge. And so there, yes, there are some things that are always going to be more coded domestically and some things that are more coded as international relations. But I think there's an increasing understanding, certainly within the Biden administration, that you need to approach these things as you are, not as how you categorize them on paper. Yeah, yeah, I think we're seeing that play out currently in Congress now with, with the new bill for funding and so I, I wonder, because I remember there was there was an article, that, I mean, it was pretty well known that once we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, mm-hmm. that, uh, a few of our allies had a, a, quite the things to say because they felt like it disrupted some of their supply chains and ability to um, export um, certain resources. So can you tell us a little bit about how you helped, um, I guess, make those relationships um, a little more cozy mm-hmm. versus um, what was reported? Well, it helps. Um, a couple of things help with that. One um, is that you're you're coming back from a place of having worked very hard to rebuild those relationships and those alliances. So that's not the first thing that we're doing. You have a lot that you can point to to demonstrate how much we have valued our partnership and continue to value the partnership. Now, I'm out of government now, so what I can say <laughs> to my friends in, in Europe in particular now is if you want transformational change that is actually serious about mitigating the worst impacts of climate change, then this is it. The IRA is it. This is the best, biggest hope, and certainly in my lifetime, for genuine, transformational, economic change that is going to mitigate the impact of climate change. So here it is. And we can have conversations about processes and tactics along the way, (laughs) but nobody ever said that change wasn't uncomfortable. And certainly this is not an administration that is never going to apologize. Is it ever going to apologize for putting the needs of Americans first? Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, speaking about the needs of Americans and sort of shifting the conversation a little bit over to Ukraine, because you were in the administration when that entire, you know, when the beginning of that war, or should I, I shouldn't say even beginning, the continuation mm-hmm. of that war played out um, on the global stage. And I'm, we're just more curious to hear, how did you maintain a strong allied response 
when there was so much conflict overseas and so many people were frantic here in, in our nation about the response. Look, it's a scary thing, the idea of war breaking out in Europe in our lifetimes. That is, um, that, that is a real paradigm shift, to say the least. Yeah. But, you know, I think taking a step back, um, part of the reason that Putin chose his timing to conduct this illegal invasion of Ukraine was because he believed that the West was fractured or fracturing. He saw the impact of the Trump presidency on the United States. And of course, Russia had no small hand in fomenting Definitely. domestic political unrest during those years and in the run up to it. Um, but he also saw the impact of Brexit on the United Kingdom and mm -hmm. Europe. He saw Angela Merkel, um, with whom he has uh, had a, I think, strong and respectful relationship over the years, uh, leave the chancellorship in Germany. He saw President Macron under some uh, political challenges at home yeah. in France. And he saw, I think, an opportunity, or what he understood to be an opportunity. And that's part of why he chose his timing, because he believed that it uh, was a moment where uh, the West would be divided and not united. And I think he was surprised that the West, led by President Biden and by this administration, was as united uh, mm -hmm. as it was. Not just, and I should say not just the West as in NATO allies and partners, yeah. though that is certainly, I think, that the central alliance um, that has been um, really strong and in not just supporting its own, its own security, but also as a body and as individual members supporting Ukraine. But even beyond NATO borders, uh, to yeah. go to even the Middle East, to go to East Asia, to go to countries that I think he might thought sit on the sidelines during uh, an invasion of Ukraine, um, he has found that the United States has been one step ahead of him in yeah. organizing the world to be, uh, you know, if not able to deter him, which was always the hope, um, but we're really realistic about, about the possibility of that, mm -hmm. then to make sure that consequences were being imposed. Yeah. And we cannot underestimate the power that communications played in maintaining those strong allyships. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've had many different constituencies across countries have different interests um, that were challenged, particularly by the Ukraine, by the Russia, by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like, um, what the pressure was like? How did you handle the fact that every word coming out of the National Security Council would be heavily scrutinized and digested across uh, across the world? And how did that either motivate you or, I guess, even potentially slow some some of what you guys want to do down? It's a big question. We could have yeah. a whole semester-long <laughs> seminar about this exact topic. Huh? Come to my discussion group. We're going to be talking about this in a few weeks. Um, so a couple of things. One, the president gave very clear marching orders from the very beginning about yeah. what the objectives were as this chapter of history began to unfold. He said, look, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, meaning we are not making decisions for the Ukrainian government or the Ukrainian people about their future of their country. Mm -hmm. So if there's going to be something that involves their future, their equities. They are at the table. They are driving the conversation right there along with us. Very, very important. Two, we are not putting U.S. boots on the ground. And very important to be clear about that early on, because yeah. anytime you're talking about potential military conflict um, anywhere in the world where there may be a perceived or actual U.S. equity, you have to be really clear about what is on the table and what is not. Otherwise, you really risk a potential escalation. Um, and then the third, NATO, yeah. very much so, very mm -hmm. much so. And then that's actually the third thing, is keep NATO united and make very clear that while we are not putting boots on the ground in Ukraine, we are going to defend every square inch of NATO territory, and there should be no ambiguity around yeah. that point. 
So when you have clarity of mission like that, that makes your job as a communicator actually much easier because you understand, one, what does success look like? What is it that I'm trying to, at a very high level, just communicate over and over and over again relentlessly? Um, and it gives you a home base when, whether it's the tactics of the day, you know, how many of this weapon system are you thinking about delivering and where is it within your pipeline? Or someone in Kiev said this, or someone in Brussels said that, you know, you can just really keep your eye on your North Stars, and that really makes a big difference. Um, but then it also, with that framework, it gives you a comfortable place from which to go out and communicate relentlessly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the relentlessness was a really big part of it. Um, you have to, I think, as a communicator, be willing to say the same thing over and over and over again. I read somewhere that the average person needs to hear something seven times before it sticks in their minds. And <laughs> it's a reminder to us as communicators that even if we think we're being repetitive, maybe that's when it's starting to get to a sticking place with our audience. Yeah. Um, and to your point, you know, being consistent, because if you're talking from the White House or the National Security Council or the State Department, if you say it the same way six times and then the seventh time, there's a little bit of variation. That variation is what reporters are going to pick up on. And they'll say, White House changes their story, or State Department says something new. And that becomes yeah. the story then. So you have to be very disciplined. Um, you also have to, I think, have a high level of trust in your colleagues because when you're talking about something like a Russian invasion of Ukraine, that inherently involves a whole slew of government communicators and yeah. partner communicators. And that's, that, that's really advanced and it requires a high degree of trust uh, with your colleagues and also with your international allies and partners. Yeah. You need to be able to be candid with one another in private, to try things out, to experiment, to be open to hearing things, but also to be very disciplined and mm -hmm. to, as a leader, be willing to enforce that discipline and make yourself known both internally and externally as a person who is going to have reliable information and that even if you can't provide reliable, perfect information, that you're going to err on the side of credibility and mm -hmm. honesty and accuracy, um, that that is going to be what you keep coming back to over and over again. Yeah. Definitely. And I feel like you, you talked a lot about the importance of communication. And especially mm -hmm. during Ukraine, we were starting to see before the invasion of the attack began, there was already like open systems intelligence. I believe that's what you mentioned during our um conversation earlier yes and that plays a huge role in the spread of misinformation and disinformation mm -hmm. and as someone whose words are so highly scrutinized how do you handle the spread of misinformation mm -hmm. and disinformation on social media and yeah so we've learned a lot in the last couple of years and I say we all of us I'm guessing anyone who is listening to this who's yeah. already has by nature a demonstrated interest in this um, but certainly we in government have learned a lot about how state actors and non-state actors use both dis and misinformation mm -hmm. in their information uh, operations. Disinformation, as we all know, fancy word for lies. You yes. know that what you are yeah. saying is false. Misinformation, you don't necessarily know. You could be repeating bad, inaccurate information, but there's not an intent to spread lies necessarily behind yeah. it. But both of those are, um, you know, active elements of what, um, you know, we talk about as the information space, the information mm -hmm. operations. And look, the information space is a theater of warfare in 2023, as it was in 21 and 22. Mm -hmm. um, if you control the narrative and you control the information space, so you have momentum in the information space, then that gives you an advantage in the overall campaign that you are waging, uh, including yeah. military campaigns. And we knew that Putin was going to try to use the information space to his advantage. 
Um, many of us who were in government uh, during Russia's invasion of Ukraine had been in government during uh, Putin's annexation of Crimea in yeah. 2014. Yes. And yeah. so we, I think, vividly remembered that feeling of watching warning signs appear in the intelligence and then seeing them play out in real time. And that yeah. frustration of, we knew this was coming, we didn't do anything with that knowledge that we, yeah. we saw it in the intel and that it happened in the real world and nobody wanted to let that happen again. And yeah. so from the president on down, there was a concerted effort to think about how can we use our knowledge of one, what we're seeing Russia plan in the intelligence space, how can we use that more effectively to try to deter Russia or at the very least deny them the narrative pretext for an invasion yeah. but also too how can we use the information space ourselves knowing that the russians are going to try to seize control of it how can we deny them that opportunity and turn the tables on them and so at the president's direction we undertook a fairly risky in but in the re in retrospect successful effort to what we um, call downgrade and share. Downgrade yeah. is the intelligence community uh, term for declassifying information mm -hmm. so that it can be shared in sort of a sanitized version, scrubbed to protect sources and methods with um, either others who have security clearances but maybe are not Americans, or in this case, the general public. And so we downgraded a fair amount of intelligence that we scrubbed to make sure it did not compromise sources and methods with an eye towards sharing it with the general public again mm -hmm. with the hope of either deterring Putin from invading Ukraine mm -hmm. or if we couldn't do that then denying him the narrative pretext that yeah. would have he would have tried to use to justify an invasion mm -hmm. yeah and you served as uh, and you served at Twitter as the leader for global communications mm -hmm. and so can you tell us a little bit about how that experience on Twitter where we know social media is the breeding ground for misinformation and disinformation yes. so can you tell us a little bit about what you experienced in a role on behalf of misinformation, disinformation, mm -hmm. and how that gave you lessons going into um, your role at, at the National Security Council. Sure, so so yeah, I was head of policy communications at Twitter from 2017 to 2018, so a little over a year. And the year that I was there was the year that Twitter, like many social media companies, and I'll just call it Twitter for historical accuracy purposes, yeah. <laughs> um, that Twitter, like many social media companies, was doing uh, retroactives into how its platform was used in the 2016 election. And one of my takeaways from that experience, which you know eventually led to congressional hearings in the fall of 2017, in which we testified to all of this publicly, along with Facebook and Google, um, was that yes, there were state actors that were present on platform that did not identify themselves as state actors and Twitter, like many other social media companies should have caught them because they violated our terms of service yeah. and we had rules against that kind of thing um but i think what was ultimately more damaging in terms of its impact on the polity was not the role that state actors played but how state actors were able to harness divisions within our own society and then mm -hmm. sit back and watch as we tore ourselves apart yeah and i think because i'm in communications i think a lot about the news cycle that launders and sort of sanitizes some of these nefarious actors on social media platforms. Yeah. And one of my takeaways is that, you know, even the act of debunking something, um, saying something, I'm going to expose this and say it's not right. You know, we talked about stickiness earlier. Yeah. Even the act of debunking something has a way of repeating the original lie mm. and planting it in the minds of your audience. And it's people don't do a good job of hearing, especially if they're predisposed to believe something that they've been fooled. They really don't like hearing that's I think a very human response um, and so a simple fact checking is not going to cut it 
when you are already in a very adversarial and bubble-oriented framework, meaning we, we all live in information bubbles. You're listening yeah. to this podcast because you are predisposed to be interested in the topic matter, but also like you care about the opinions of the people who are speaking, oh, yeah. and you care about the subject matter of what they have to say. People don't usually listen to something just to get riled up in the, because they yeah. disagree with it. And also, to be fair, people don't usually listen to something because they're coming in a completely blank slate and they're there to open mind and learn. Mm-hmm. It's a very human thing to want your priors reaffirmed. And so really seeing how um, the Russians, and to be fair, other state actors, but in this case, primarily the Russians, were able to inject just a little bit of bile into our system and then watch as we infected ourselves with it was a real eye-opener. And it got me thinking a lot about how how do we inform people without making them feel lectured or condescended to? How do you reach people who are already very skeptical of the fact of your platform and what you think gives you credibility as a messenger actually hurts you in the eyes of the very audience that you're trying to reach? So being humble about who the messenger is, um, if the message is right, is a really good takeaway. Um, Be humble about your ability to fact check and as a communicator helping to communicate that internally so when someone says to you, I don't understand, this is a lie, why do people believe it, you can say, well, look, you and I agree this is factually wrong or it's a lie, but this is why people believe it. So instead of telling people that they're wrong, which gets people defensive, how about we make them think for themselves, oh, this is the right way and help lead them to that place where they come to that conclusion themselves. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, leading people or steering them in the right direction in terms of information, you, you know, with all of your experience in the National Security Council working under Biden's administration and Twitter, you began your own um, consulting. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious to hear about your inspiration for doing so. For sure. Yeah. And what sure. Made you begin that? Look, my standards are impossibly high now um, <laughs> for bosses. After you work for people like Jake Sullivan and Jack yeah. Dorsey, you have really high standards for leadership. And um, and also, look, I have young children and my, my oldest has some special needs. And so it was really important for me to be there for my family after essentially being an absentee parent for almost a year and a half doing transition in this job. Um, government jobs at this level, um, families serve uh, alongside the person who was serving. And so it was really hard on my family. Um, when I went back into government, uh, we set a deadline that I would do this only for a certain amount of time, and I did it for a certain amount of time. Um, but also, I've been a career government official my whole life, and so with the exception of a few years uh, during the Trump administration doing some other things, and I think it is a good and healthy thing to stay humble and keep learning. So right now I am learning about entrepreneurship, I am learning about financial services, I am learning about how to take companies public, I'm learning about earnings calls, I'm learning about all the things that you do in the private sector that those of us who came up in the public sector just don't do. Um, And it's great to still be learning um, and very humbling. That's a big part of why I wanted to come and spend time at Georgetown because there are things that your generation just has in their bones about how do you communicate and what resonates with you and how do you define authenticity and credibility that I am really enjoying learning about as I'm meeting with students and and faculty. It's just a very different perspective and those of us who are now decidedly in middle age need to find ways to stay connected (laughs) with people who are much more on the pulse these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you spoke a little bit about um, you know, how much doing that job weighs on, you know, on your family. Because I think one interesting thing is you see a lot of leaders in communications, they don't stay on um, as long 
as other government officials. You know, White House press secretaries normally stay one to two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about why that environment is so, like, hassling and tiring? Because I think you have to be nearly awake at all hours on of the, the night, on the go, yeah. ready I, to I respond. I tried a lot of eye creams when I was in the house, <laughs> let me tell you. Oh, I think I need you. your list, so <laughs> please. Um, no, look, I would never want to speak for anyone else. Um, I will say just for me, having a young family really changed my perspective. I was yeah. very hard-charging and very career-oriented and defined um, for most of my adult life. Um, and then I wouldn't say that having young kids during a global pandemic changed that exactly, but it definitely forces you to prioritize other things. And, you know, it's very humbling. I think all of us went through a lot of tough times over the last several years, but one of the things that unexpectedly I took away from that time was this experience of seeing us all beamed into each other's homes, everyone just doing the best that they could, whether it is supervising school for children or being in school yourselves or even just having a meeting and you don't realize that the camera is showing a big pile of unfolded laundry on your couch. (laughs) Um, You know, all of us are just doing the best that we can. And I'd like to think that it made me uh, slow down a bit and have some more empathy and some more patience and realize that work while very very important is not going to love you back and it's not the be all end all yeah and i I think that's incredible you were a mom a new mom during that time during the transition and i think we all remember we were living history every other day (laughs) (laughs) so that's that's incredible i just wanted to put that out that's kind of you but look it made a big difference that a lot of us were in that situation Mm -hmm. um and it was um again i think Never would have chosen the circumstances, but it did have, I think, a very humanizing effect to all of us who were you know, beaming in from our homes to try to manage a presidential transition from our living rooms or from our bedrooms. Um, yeah. And kids are running in and out of the back. I once accidentally changed a diaper in front of a cabinet. <laughs> I won't say who on the air. Um, but there's, I, I think it's very humbling and it's very yeah. humanizing, and especially when a lot of these roles um understandably have a lot of ceremony and hierarchy and um um and what's the word i'm looking for um like star power around them you know at the end of the day we're all just people trying to do the best we can and i think it actually really bonded the team that came in on day one uh, to all be working together under those very humbling circumstances yeah and Definitely. before we jump into lightning round, yeah. um, you speak about those circumstances and the team you worked with. Yeah. A lot of those were alumni from the Obama administration. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about what the difference was like well, between working under the Obama administration and the Biden administration, and also how some of our national security, both priorities and threats, shifted during during the time. Oh, I'm boy. pretty sure we can go on forever <laughs> about yeah. that. Yeah, again, that's a whole seminar. Um, the latter first. Look, the world was dramatically different in yeah. January of 2021 than it was in January of 2017. Um, we had just been through, we're very much in the midst of a global pandemic and a global recession and the economy crashing at home. Um, We had been through some really scary moments with North Korea, with Russia, competition with China was entering an entirely new phase. Um, We had been through, um, we talked earlier about the fraying, in some cases deliberate fraying of a number of our alliances. Especially in Southeast Asia where you were. Yeah, where you were. Yeah, no, we, we, it was, it was a rough period for not just the United States, but for so many people in the world. Um, 
I think a lot of people who served in both political and career uh, positions during the Obama administration, whether they were appointed by the president or whether they came up through national security bureaucracy um, like I did, you know, a lot of us decided um, that we were not credible, frankly, serving in the Trump administration. As a spokesperson, I'm, I'm not credible. I think switching from one administration to another, a reporter's not going to believe me when I have an entirely different <laughs> set of talking points from yeah. one day to another. Um, and look, I think every administration deserves to have credible spokespeople, regardless of whether I personally believe their politics or not. That's just the thing that I think everyone should have to be set up for success. Um, so I looked at the Trump administration through many lenses, but one of them was a chance to go out and learn some new things, learn how to be a manager, learn how to acquire some new skills that would serve me in a future career path, um, learn to try out some new industries, spend some time in big tech, for instance. Um, I taught for a while, that was wonderful, had family, that was wonderful, still is. Um, so it was a chance to go out and do some new things after really sprinting for a lot of Obama. And I think regardless of politics, again, it's very different being at the end of an administration versus being at the beginning of an administration. I came, I came to the White House for the first time with a year and a half left um, for Obama, and it was a very different vibe uh, in you know some wonderful ways, but very different yeah. um, than coming back in day one for, for any administration would be. Um, you're, you're in legacy securing mode. You're in victory lap mode. You're in wrap up loose ends mode. Yeah. Um, and then in the case of the Trump election, it was a little bit like, well, okay, like, uh, you know, some, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll just yeah. leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> I have yeah. a lot of analogies for that, but I'll go ahead and save those for off camera. <laughs> so just to wrap up the episode, we like to do um, a little lightning round. We'll just ask a couple of random questions for you. Um, but as someone who's done so much traveling, we're just curious to hear, um, is there a country that you haven't visited that you would love to go and see and explore? Oh, or one of, the, one of your favorite countries that you've visited? Oh gosh, I have not spent nearly as much time in Central Asia as I would have liked to. I was the spokesperson for South and Central Asia for several years at the State Department, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, was very fortunate most of my travel centered around South Asia but yeah. I've never been to Turkmenistan I've never been to Kyrgyzstan I've never been hiking in Tajikistan which I'm yeah. dying to do <laughs> um, all of this these beautiful places that I think are really underexplored by Americans that I would just love to spend more time in yeah and so um, you have served in many national security roles and so I think one of our first conversations was, have you seen Madam Secretary? And, <laughs> and if you've seen those political dramas, is it similar to the actual work that you do? I have not seen, I, okay, I've watched one episode of Madam Secretary <laughs> and it was in a hotel room in, I think, Ottawa, I wanna say. And I, I, it came on when, like in between meetings as I was getting ready and I, like, I, I just, I could not watch it. It was just like, it was too familiar. It was, and all I wanted to do was critique it be like, you would never talk that way to someone on the second floor. Or, oh my God, a desk officer just wanders up and talks to us? What? No, like it just made me so angry. I could yeah. not watch it. Um, so I, but I don't mean that to like yuck someone else's yum. Yeah. I understand it is a lovely show. If you watch Madam Secretary, I'm very happy for you. Keep doing what you're doing and no disrespect to Taya Leone I think she's beautiful and brilliant yeah (laughs) Yeah. um so as a new mom what (laughs) is your favorite children's show that your kids watch Uh, maybe you watch too oh god okay (laughs) my kids are really into bluey these days 
like deep into blue. And I'm sorry, but like the dad lets them get away with murder. And yeah, no, he's he's very, very patient, which I aspire to be as a parent. But like the other day, my three year old told me, Mommy, chairs don't talk. As in, like, de- like the dad was like being a chair and like playing chairs so the kids could sit on him, and I was like, "Oh hell no! Oh my god, oh, we no, are not no, doing no. that." No. <laughs> but on the whole, Bluey is pretty inoffensive. There's a lot of extremely terrible children's programming out there. Yeah. <laughs> and so, what has been your favorite memory as a new parent? Oh gosh, I mean, there's a million of them. Um, yeah. My favorite work-related one: look, taking my kids, taking your kids trick or treating at the White House is really Aww. wonderful. I was like. Yesterday it was Halloween, so my husband and I were looking at baby pictures, of course, of all of our kids dressed up, and I'd forgotten that when my first son was, I guess, about five months old, we dressed him up as baby Spock and taken him trick-or-treating at the White House, and so looking back over those pictures was really darn cute. Yeah. That's adorable. Yeah. Well, I think that wraps up our time for today. Thank you so much for joining us, for answering our questions. It was such a a very insightful Thanks for having me. This is super fun. Yeah, I remember when we were reading over your research, when we were researching you, I was like, I mean, we can have such like a two hour multi series episode. (laughs) To be continued. I'll see you guys at the tombs. (laughs) Thank you so much again. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five star rating on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kenneth Jackson, Julian Zeitlinger, Abigail Asadi, and Chase Dobson. Our communications team is Andrea Smith, Austin Culpepper, Darius Wagner, and Sarah Sverdlov. Our production team is Will Hayes and David Grice. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Eng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of the Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service, and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening, and fly with you soon.